Okay, so last week, our question there, let me read it. We, question 48, what is the church? God chooses and preserves for himself a community elected for eternal life and united by faith who love, follow, learn from, and worship God together. God sends out this community to proclaim the gospel and prefigure Christ's kingdom by the quality of their life together and their love for one another. We actually didn't even get all the way through that question because of some great rabbit trails and questions. But this morning, I wanted to read to you a quote from John MacArthur that you may sound like it over, you may think that it oversimplifies life's problems, but I, I heartily agree with this statement. He says, The source of most of the problems people have in their Christian lives, most. To clarify, the source of most of the problems people have in their Christian lives relate to two things. Either they are not worshiping six days a week with their life, or they are not worshiping one day a week with the assembly of the saints. And we need both, he says. I think that really kind of summarizes our question from last week about the church. We need to be worshiping together and even throughout the week, going through life together, worshiping our Savior. Because he's the only hope, right? I think a lot of people have their hopes staked on other things this week. And those hopes will easily, easily get dashed, as you probably saw for, for most of us. <laughs> um, my hope isn't there. So, this week's question, 49, where is Christ now? The answer, Christ rose bodily from the grave on the third day after his death and is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling his kingdom and interceding for us until he returns to judge and renew the world. So this question, the content of it, we're actually going to cover. The next two questions will all will both deal with that about the, why the resurrection is important is next week, and the week after that about why is his, his ascension and intercession important. But this morning, I want us to just look, think about this. And I, I think I put this quote at the beginning, didn't I, under where does this come from? The resurrection of Christ is the centerpiece of the gospel. Without it, Christ's death and burial would be rendered ineffective and incomplete. Christology, Christology would undergo major revisions without the resurrection, which would then affect all of Christian theology. So put your thinking cap on with me and say, what would, why would Christianity, all of our Christian theology be affected if Christ did not rise from the dead? Couldn't he just die on the cross for our sins? Okay, we would not expect to do the same. Excellent. What else? There's lots of, lots of things here that are impacted by not having the resurrection. You're getting at something. The death part. <laughs> Where did death come from? Sin, when? In the garden of the creation. Well, right after creation, right? <laughs> exactly. Like, 
that undo, undoes, is that, that sounds wrong, Un, it undoes, anyway, it undoes, thank you, like something doesn't sound right with that word, it undoes everything from Genesis 3 forward if he doesn't rise from the grave, because of that prophecy, what were you going to say, Josh? Yeah, we would just be going, groping around in the darkness trying to find light. Yeah. So, Matt. I was going to say, part of that defeating of sin, the defeating of death, there is a connection between, I think that's what you were implying a minute ago, there's a defeating of sin and death. And I think, uh, I think the verse that's come to my mind is, the same power that rose Christ from the dead is what's now at work in you. Mm-hmm. So just bringing life to our mortal bodies in the terms of, like, fighting against sin. Yeah, because yeah. sin and death are interchanged, are, are interconnected. I mean, I would not be able to have victory over sin because he had not ris, rose. Oh, my gosh, what's with my tenses of my verbs? He wouldn't have raised up from the grave, right? Rose, risen, help me out. He undoes. This is bad. <laughs> Granted, I might fit in with some folk. <laughs> Other thoughts? Okay, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. All of 1 Corinthians 15 is pretty much about the resurrection anyway, and Paul even answers the question of what's the point if there is no resurrection. I'm not going to go through all 60 verses of, uh, 58 verses of, of 1 Corinthians 15, but I want us to look at verses 3 through 4. Actually, let's just start at verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For, right, but because I delivered to you as of first importance that uh, what I also received, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. All right, stop there. What are prophecies? He says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. What scriptures would Paul be talking about? What scriptures did Paul have available to him? Did he have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at that point? No. Mark, maybe actually, but everything else not. What is he referring to? Josh. Old Testament prophets, right? Old Testament prophets predicted, prophesied Christ dying for our sins. What are some passages you know from the Old Testament where it says Christ, this Messiah, 
will die for the sins of his people. What's well, like the classic passage people go, would go to? Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions, right? Multiple passages, but Isaiah 53 is really clear that the Messiah, that suffering servant, would suffer for the sins of his people. And there's really a lot of prophecies, direct prophecies that clearly say the Messiah is going to be do is going to die for the people for his for the sins of the people. All right. Look at verse 4. So the second part, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, there's not most a lot of scholars have go wait a second Paul, where does it say that? Cuz he says that the resurrection is also prophesied in the Old Testament. Accordance, according, in accordance with the scriptures. So, that is a good head scratcher. But I want to show you this morning that there are four very clear references to not just the resurrection of uh, a general resurrection of everyone, but a resurrection of the Messiah. So let's look at Psalms 16. Um, this guy's last name is Gandhi, Harold Gandhi. He wrote this article that I found very helpful explaining and showing these. Um, but he says that these four passages reveal that the Messiah in particular would be raised from the dead. So let's look at Psalm 16, verse 10. And... Um, I would encourage you, as you read the Psalms, I encourage you to do this for all of the Old Testament because Jesus said on the road to Emmaus that he showed those two men how everything points forward to him, right? But when you read the Psalms, try to read them, and let me give you a $4 word here, Christologically, okay? That means how do these Psalms point to Christ, and they all point to Christ in some way or another, some of them very, very obviously. Um, this particular one um, is a Psalm of David where he is apparently um, being persecuted. But look at verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 9. He says, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. He, in the midst of whatever this persecution is, David says this about, well, it says, verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which is the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, there are a lot of psalms like this where David's writing, and it doesn't make sense that it really is talking about him. That first part, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, shows that David had believed that God would bring him from the dead. But it, that next phrase sounds strange. Your holy one see corruption. That holy one is a unique messianic title. And it never in the Old Testament refers to David. 
So right there you see there's this, and David is a type of Christ, he, meaning he, he's a real person, and then the Old Testament has a real history, but so many aspects of his life point forward to a Christ figure, to, my, to the Messiah coming. And David right here, a lot of times when he writes, is writing, like if you read Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That clearly is David writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so we've got this first one, Psalm 1610, uses this phrase, that holy one. And that's always refers to the Messiah in the Old Testament. Now go over to Psalm 22. Look at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have you heard that before? From the cross, right? Jesus on the cross quotes this. Um, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? This psalm is by David, and I believe David in his suffering writes this, but the Messiah fills it up perfectly. So look then down to verse 24. The rest, you know, if you look at verse 14, another pointer to Christ, actually verse 7, all who see me mock me, they make their make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Look at verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. So you can see this, this psalm clearly pointing to Christ. <laughs> Prophecies actually here. But look at verse 24. For he, God, has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. So that, that hidden there is the same kind of word of forsaking that you see up at the, in the verse 1 of it's related to it, of turning away from the God, God, the Father, has not hidden his face from him, has heard when he cried to him. That right there is pointing forward to Christ rising from the dead. Because this whole psalm, you can see, is about Christ. It's all, I mean, so much. It's just very clear pointers to Christ. And you can see that he's going to die. <laughs> and then you get to verse 24, and it says that the Father, that God has not despised or abhorred him, has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Here's 
almost every historian agrees that that was written a thousand years before crucifixion was given. Exactly. Crucifixion wasn't invented at this point as a torture. So it's clearly, David's life does not fulfill this psalm. You can see him, his own suffering, if you read through Second through First Kings, when he's being chased by, well, earlier in Samuel by Saul, and then first part of First Kings, and then even then after he's king and his son takes over, and it's a terrible mess in the family, he's being chased. You can see some aspects in this, but as David's writing, he's clearly writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because these things don't fill up David's life. David does not fulfill this. So that person comes to, but check this out, because this, the, whole, the beginning of the psalm is, God, don't forsake me. They've pierced me. It's terrible. And then it goes, it goes downward, and now it goes upward. And if, what is the point of Christ dying, by the way, and rising from the dead? It's not just for our sins. It's to reverse the curse, the curse of sin and death and all of creation would be turned would be um, pointing and giving glory back to God and that the nations would come and give glory to God so now read verse 22 through 27 and see <laughs> this is pointing clearly to Christ i will tell of your name to my brothers well for, look at verse 20 deliver my soul from the sword my precious life from the power of the dog save me from the mouth of the lion And here's the turn. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he's not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. In other words, the one who died has to come alive in order to eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Look at this. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. David's clearly not talking about himself. Verse 28, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship and before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Awesome, isn't it? Christ, Paul says, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, two scriptures so far that point to the Messiah will rise from the dead. Now let's look over at Isaiah 53, and you'll see that even in Isaiah 53 that we mostly look at for its references to the, re- the crucifixion and his, his suffering death for us, you'll also see the resurrection in here. Um, let me start at verse 8. Isaiah 53, verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken 
for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So this suffering servant goes to the grave. Now, verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. That's the same words from Psalm 22. He shall not eat here, but eat and be satisfied is what Psalm 22 says. Here, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You see that how it turns? He, can't, he goes from the grave, and then he shall see his offspring. In the middle of verse 10, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So not only does Isaiah 53 point to the suffering, but it also points to the victory that he'll have over the grave. Now, one more passage, and then I want to just bring up another one that came to my mind while I've been speaking here this morning. That I'm like, duh, why didn't I put this one down? Daniel chapter 12. Okay, so this is Daniel's last vision. Look at verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So right there is a prophecy in the Old Testament of the resurrection of everyone, whether you're in Christ or not. It's some, everyone will awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, verse 3, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So, verse 50, back in Isaiah 53, it says, that uh, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one make many to be accounted righteous. Right here, verse 3, and those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. So there's a connection between Isaiah 53 and Daniel 12 here. And this author, Gandhi, says, Once a connection is established between Isaiah 53 and Daniel 12, a strong case emerges for the resurrection of the Messiah himself. Daniel 12.3 refers to the saints as those who are wise, just as the servant in Isaiah 52 is said to act wisely. And the servant is said to make people righteous in Isaiah 53. And the saints turn many to righteousness. So there's four passages right there that show in the Old Testament that the Messiah will rise. Now, what's, what do you think the fifth one, 
that I might have that might have come to my mind even this morning that I don't know why I didn't think of earlier. What are you thinking of? Okay, look at Matthew 12. You got to go to the Old New Testament first before you remember what the Old Testament one is. Matthew chapter 12. Verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah. I know, right? Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> now, it, because you don't think of Jonah as a prophecy, right? You think of Jonah as a story that points to repentance, and it is. But there are many passages in the Old Testament that the New Testament authors looked at and saw that there is much laden meaning in this. For instance, it says in Matthew near the beginning, when Joseph and Mary go from Israel to Egypt to escape Herod. And then they, they come out of Egypt. Matthew says, quotes Hosea and says, out of Egypt I call, have I called my son. Like, wait a second. That, that's, oh. So here, if Jesus himself says Jonah points forward as a type to Christ, then I have to say, yeah, okay, that's how I have to read the Old Testament. See what I mean? It's kind of interesting. Okay, questions on that before we look at the why does it matter? It's beautiful. I, I think what you just said before that is like, what are you to say? I've got like no words, right? Like, let my words be few. <laughs> yeah. The, the closest people try to point to that are secular is that Nosferatu writings. <laughs> if you've ever looked at those, they're an absolute joke. I mean, there's some weird things in there. But they don't read like this. They don't work like this. They're not, th th that's one person writing, and it's, it's odd. I, I don't know where that came from other than Satan, probably. Um, this, 40 authors yeah. over how many, more than 1,000, 1,500 years, I think, the period of writing is, it's amazing. And the prophecies. And the prophecies. Considering the whole counsel of God's word yeah. and seeing how it's just like, what the heck? It's weaved, Jesus is weaved from the very first day and, and what was going to happen for us. The victory that we were going to have is weaved through the whole thing. Like, it's incredible. Man, I, I can't, I'm, I'm getting really excited about preaching next week, finally. <laughs> Matt is too, because he's just like, I'm, I need a break. <laughs> I wish I could have done it this week. Um, 
it's one of those sermons. It's, we're getting to Joshua, and chapters 13 through 19 are the allotment of the land. And it's probably one of the most boring passages for most of us to read. Because it's, it's so much just facts, and this tribe got this, and this, and this is this border. And I've been telling you, all of the Old Testament points to Jesus, and I've been wrestling with how does this point forward to Christ. And the, the things that, I, I'm still not sure how I'm going to preach it, because there's just so much stuff I've seen as my study over the last month and a half of this is rooted from Genesis and Eden and a land where Christ dwells. And then everything from Eden, from Genesis 3, and angels blocking entrance back into it, points forward to the end. Points forward to a new creation where Christ dwells with his people and a river flows through it. And everything you see, like Abraham is given promise of a land, it's just, it's amazing that it all, <laughs> I don't know. I'll probably, that's how I'll preach this next week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It will. <laughs> okay, so. <laughs> Minions. <laughs> All right. So why does this matter? I, there's, we can talk after this about why this matters, but I, I just wanted to read to you the, the devotion from the New City Catechism on today's question because I thought it was really encouraging. No doubt you've heard the phrase, out of sight, out of mind. Someone who's not around, whom you haven't seen in a long time, doesn't have much impact or relevance in your day-to-day -day life. The Bible tells us that after Jesus' resurrection, he ascended into heaven, disappearing from view, out of sight. But we're also told that because of where he now resides, we can be assured that he's relevant in our daily lives. So he should not be out of mind, even though he's out of sight. So where is Jesus now? He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. But what difference does that make to us in our day-to-day -day lives? First... It reminds us that Jesus rules over all creation. Psalm 110 paints a beautiful picture of God's enemies as a footstool of Jesus as he sits at the Father's right hand. Can you see the comfort of that in your daily life? When you struggle with discouragement or disappointment or bitterness about the way your life is going, or when you're discouraged and angry about all the injustice and evil in the world, and like David in Psalm 37, you're tempted to ask why the wicked seem to flourish or win the election. Consider where Jesus is now. He's at the right hand of God the Father. See him there. Enemies are his footstool. The one who conquered death is now ruling the world. Ephesians 1 says that Jesus was given all authority and will one day return and make the crooked places straight. So let where Jesus is now give you hope and courage to trust and follow him. But there's even more. Not only is Jesus the king who rules, but he is the priest who intercedes. 
Hebrews 10 tells us that Jesus is the great high priest who on the cross offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. He is now interceding and praying for us at the Father's right hand. He is our advocate in every sense of that word. So to see Jesus at God's right hand as our high priest is to remember that there is no condemnation for our sin that Jesus sacrificed himself so that we could be united with him. We have the full rights, therefore, as God's children. So yes, Jesus is out of sight. We can't physically see him, but he is active in our day-to-day lives. And in this world, at the right hand of God the Father, ruling as our king, interceding as our priest, and waiting to return when he will wipe away every tear, beat swords into plowshares and flood the world with his glory and grace. Man, I'm ready for Christmas. First John two or first John three, two through three. It's the last thing I wanted to close with and we're way early, so I'll take any questions we have. But one question that's often come to my mind is where is what is Jesus like right now? We know he's at the right hand of the Father. Is he some kind of ethereal spirit? And I would argue no, for two reasons. There's a whole bunch of reasons, but um, when he rose from the grave, revealed himself to his apostles, yes, he could do things that you and I cannot do. Like he could walk through doors, but he had a physical body. And the reason we know is because after he walked through that door, he ate with them. And he asked Thomas to touch his hands and feet, right? And then at the end of John, he's on the beach cooking fish for them and eats with them. So we know he has a body then. At the ascension, he raises, man, what is with that verb for me today? He rises, yeah, he rises into the air. And it says then in Hebrews that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then if you think about 1 John 3, 2 through 3, John says to us, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I believe that he still has that resurrection body and will, it's a glorified, perfect body. And that's what he'll always have forever. So when we are resurrected, we will then see him face to face and we will then be like he is. We will have glorified, resurrected bodies. We will not be God, but we will have a body like him, perfectly made in the image of God and glorified. I think the body that Adam had before the curse would have lived forever had he not sinned. Otherwise, death would not have been to would not have needed to be introduced. He would have lived perfectly in that body. I think that the body that we'll have at this point is even greater than that body. It's it's pretty awesome to think about. Any other body than, yeah, I'm feeling the same right now. (laughs) Any other body would be great right now. Yeah.
Isn't that awesome? I do. I do, because it says in Revelation that they'll look on the one whom they have pierced. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Christ is ruling. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm not shaken. I was disappointed, but I'm not shaken. Yeah, right? Those, right? But Christ is still on his throne, always. Yeah, and Nineveh was a huge city. Let me read to you the lyrics from this song called It Is Not Death to Die. You just reminded me of this. It is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears and wake in joy before your throne Delivered from our fears, O Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in you will will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. It is not death to fling aside this earthly dust and rise with strong and noble wing to live among the just. It is not death to hear the key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise you evermore. O Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in you will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. It's awesome. To be with the one who rose, who's interceding for us right now. Other questions, thoughts? Josh? Right? It is awesome. Yeah. It is amazing. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for being the one who gave your precious, your son's precious blood to save us. And in your mercy, we will find that it is not death to die, but to see our risen Savior face to face. We long for that day. And we thank you that we have this hope that stretches far beyond this short life. In Jesus' name, amen.